And everyone said, Praise the Lord. Now, everybody say, Praise the Lord. Isn't it great to be in the house of God? Let's clap our hands, lift a voice of praise. We magnify you, Jesus. We magnify you, Jesus. Praise. It's amazing. First time I've been in this house, and I feel so at home. And it's those common threads that it doesn't matter if you're on the right coast or the left coast or, or on a hilltop outside Manila or down in a barrio in Central America. It's just wherever he is and whatever he's doing, I'm just glad to be there. Give honor to brother and sister Godair today. What a wonderful place, drenched in prayer. You can just feel it, the dynamics here. Just be, you're, if you're just using your natural senses here, you're lost as a goose in a hailstorm. Because there's so many features and dynamics moving in this house. Too many to talk about. Just a legacy and a deep embedded witness of the kingdom of God in this place. Thank you, brother and sister Godair, for years ministry and integrity. Thank you for this place. Thanks for the hospitality, all the kind things you do for your speakers. But in terms of the church, I'm just glad they let me in. It was in question for a while. I didn't belong. I didn't have a pedigree. I, didn't, I just came in wandering in off the street closest thing we had going for us, my wife, when she was just a baby, had a nanny. Her dad died when she was six months, nine months old. Wife, mom brought in a nanny. Nanny's name was Grandma Mary. Grandma Mary attended the First United Pentecostal Church of Baton Rouge. Only connection we had with truth. But I know that old woman laid her hands on those babies prayed for them all the little things you do all the little things you do you never know what you're setting for in the spirit praise God I give honor to all the ministry here today there are giants in this house and um, I stand on the shoulders of giants and I'm glad to be in the presence God's people. There's a lot of giants here that don't carry ministerial license. There are giants in the kingdom of God. I want to honor all the elders, all the ministers. Brother Godair, I don't know. I, I'm not given to it often, but when I was considering the service, it's been like, you asked me two years ago. We just passed in the hallway. Hey, 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 brother. I said, he's never going to remember that. He won't even know that took place. And then I saw my mug in the flyer. I said, I guess he remembers. <laughs> but when I was prayerfully, when I was prayerfully considering this, I walk when I pray. I'm out walking, and I saw a great ship on a dark, roiling sea. An old masted ship under a low-hanging gray sky, but it was lit up like a Thomas Kincaid light emanating from somewhere. Young men out on the fore of that ship, straining like they couldn't get there fast enough. Salt spray flying everywhere. In the back up of the crow's nest, a young man looking out. Young men seeing vision. In the back of the ship, elders, elders gathered. Some in beds, some standing. I, I don't know. I just saw it. Can't tell you all about it. And I look back at the wake. And in the trail, the watery trail of that boat, I saw as far as I could see elders standing and they were gazing at that ship. They had a hand raised. And they were looking as if to say, sail on. Sail on. I'm just telling you. What I saw. Touch somebody and say, I'm glad to be on the boat. 
Glad to have my best friend in the house today, my wife Donna. Started buying her hot fudge cakes when she was 14. That's a lot of hot fudge cakes to go. She's the better part of this, uh, of this marriage and this church building enterprise. And she is the greatest person I know. Praise God. We're going to read this morning, this afternoon. It may get to early evening. Somebody said you weren't worried about eating. I knew he lied. Preachers lie all the time. Glad to see Tim Spell, another Baton Rouge boy. We're up just down the street from them. Tony's ministering at a church that's about two miles from my wife's childhood home. That is, that is a great church. It's going to be a great church. Right now it's just organized chaos, but it's going to be a great <laughs> church. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. If you love his word as you're seated this, this afternoon, I want you to sit and lift your hands and raise your voices and give him thanks for the word of God. Would you do that? We thank you, mighty God, for your word that is forever settled in the heavens. We praise you for it. We magnify you for it. We thank you for it, Lord God. Hallelujah. Are you glad for the word of God today? When I look at Isaiah 53, Isaiah's writing 700 B.C. You can sit down. You can stand if you like. I'm standing. It's fine. I got a real uh, easygoing attitude about church. You do what you need. If you got to go eat lunch, go. I don't want anybody in the house miserable. So, when I read Isaiah 53, I don't know how the old rabbis missed it. I know God blinds, God discloses, God conceals. They were living and struggling with the power of a cultural template that they couldn't overcome. But Isaiah 53 is, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But, and here's tension, and here's paradox, and here's irony. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and you can personalize that. My transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one into his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He's taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper. In his hand, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many 
for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the, divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. If you're glad for what God has done for you, clap your hands, lift your voice, give him praise. Almighty God, we praise you. We thank you, God, for your unspeakable sacrifice. We thank you, Lord God. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It is a couplet. Each answers the other. Each hinges off of the other. Uh, it's the report of the Lord. It's a seeking for a believer. It is the arm of the Lord. It is Jehovah Jireh in the mountain of the Lord. It shall be seen. Whoever believes his report in this house today. That's to whom the arm of the Lord will be revealed. And if you see the arm of the Lord being revealed, it's being revealed to somebody that says, I don't believe all the press. I don't believe the circumstances. I don't believe the trouble. I don't believe the devil. I don't believe the naysayers. But I believe the report of the Lord. And I tell you what's about to happen. The arm of the Lord is about to be revealed in my life. I don't know what it'll do. I don't know what shape it'll take. But you just hold on, devil, because God's about to come into this situation. Anybody believe the report of the Lord? Praise God. Now this is a literary device known as metonymy. The arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the right hand of God. It's metonymy. It's a part speaking of the whole. And so, um, any of you young men have a honey? Oh my. So when you go to her dad, which is respect and the right order of things, and if you don't go to her dad, you're a worthless scallywag. When you go, when you go to her dad and you say, may I have her hand in marriage? I know. He knows that you want more than the hand. It's a part representative of the whole. But when you get the hand of God and you get the arm of God, you get all of God. Psalms 98 and 1, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand, everybody say his right hand. His holy arm, say his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. This is how God operates. This is the manifest manifestation of God. This is how he works. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His right hand and his, and his arm, his mighty arm, are always demonstrations of his salvation of his people. The Lord hath made known his salvation, his righteousness, hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. You see, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the right arm, the right hand of God, and Jesus seated at the right hand of God and at the majesty of the right hand uh, uh, in, the, in the heavens. But, but nobody believes, and people get all waxing philosophical, and they, and, they, and they divide God, and they separate God, and they come untethered from, from the Shamal Israel, and they lose the orientation of those first uh, first con uh, concepts that God establishes. There's only one God. It, I don't care how what you're reading and I don't care if you don't understand the scripture. You don't in your ignorance and in your confusion create something other than hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you talk to these folks. I know they don't believe that in the Old Testament when the right hand of God got victory over the Amalekites or the Philistines, they don't believe that there was ominous music playing and out across the dunes this big hairy hand was crawling up over in the direction. Nothing but a hand. The hand of God getting victory. And he's smashing tents and he's strangling camels and he's thumping Amalekites. And then when it's over in death and destruction and smoke, the hand crawls back over them. They don't believe that for a minute. They understand that the part symbolizes the whole. I'm telling you, when you're talking about the right hand of God, you're talking about the whole of God. 
Praise God. Isaiah 53 and 2. For he shall grow up before him. He, the arm of the Lord, is a he. Shall grow up before him. This is like the Lord said unto my Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. This is the lion and the lamb. This is, this is God and the Christ. This is the God, the eternal God, the very God in his expression in the earth. Not two at all, but one. Because the part, the demonstration, the manifestation speaks of the whole. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus spoke a riddle to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 42, saying, What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day ask him any more questions. This is Peter's introduction of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. He uses he uses David as the prophetic voice and he uses David to speak of the Christ in these very terms. The Lord said unto my Lord or the phrase you won't suffer your holy one to see corruption and we know that David is not speaking of himself there but he's projecting by prophecy what God's plan is for this people and uh, and he, they're all using the same, the same literary or language construct but what Peter said uh, to clarify he said God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ he is the he and he is the him he is the Lord and he is the Christ and there's only one Lord and when he stepped out of heaven and robed himself in flesh it was God all of God every bit of God there wasn't any more God anywhere The arm of the Lord is a he. The arm of the Lord is tender and vulnerable. The arm of the Lord is a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground is like where this root lost its way. And, and, and you're looking at it thinking, you shouldn't be here. You should be underneath. And the unseen. But I, and, and I want to, don't, don't you dare think anything less of that little root. Because that little root is connected to a vast tree. And the vast tree just kind of showed you a little bit of itself. With purpose and with intent. He is the root of Jesse. He is the root and the offspring of David. And here we go again. He and him. God and Christ. Lord said unto my Lord. And now he's the root and the offspring. He's the lion and the lamb. And you understand this is weaving its way with different manifestations throughout the entirety of the word of God. But you, know, you need to know the root indicates the whole of the tree. There is no beauty in him that we should desire him. In this manifestation, the flesh is not going to glory. He didn't come to Jerusalem. They said, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? He came humble. He came meek. He was not a Hollywood Jesus. He's a little scrawny Jew that you wouldn't pick up out of a lineup for anybody that's ever going to do a great thing. He's got callous hands. He grew up in a carpenter's shop. But he's the root and the offspring. Of David. But God doesn't need a pretty boy for this. This is going to be heavy lifting. This is going to be brutal work. This is going to be ugly work. Verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, Isaiah speaks for Israel. We hid as it were our faces from him. 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. The arm of the Lord is a man. He is despised and rejected men, a man of sorrows. He's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrow. He knows about burying a friend. He know, he's a man of grief. He knows about rejection and about betrayal. He knows when people didn't understand him, but he still got to go on and do the right thing and walk right through that social pressure. Keep on doing the right thing, even though in his humanity it tore at his heart. Everybody wants salvation. But nobody wants to see how it's made. It's going to be ugly work. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. This is like the coalition of all substitutionary sacrifice. This is where it all comes to its head at Calvary. The idea of a substitutionary sacrifice is ingrained in the psyche of Israel. John uses it when he turns there at Jordan and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The whole crowd turned, expected to see quadruped, four-legged, furry, animal, sheep. But they saw a man. They saw that scrawny little ugly Jew. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. And there it is again, for he was before me praise God God's plan now presents his arm as a man the substitutionary sacrifice the arm of the Lord here lifts our griefs and carries our sorrow I just tell you this there's not another thing in all the world that can come down into your soul and down into your heart when grief is biting at you and the, the stone of sorrow has settled in on your soul and in your, and in your heart. I'm just telling you, a preacher is a poor, a poor excuse for help in that we can be there for you. We can stand there with you. We can tell you I love you. We can pray a prayer for you. But I'm telling you, there's only one that has the power to reach down in the arm of the Lord lifts the great stone of grief and the great stone of sorrow out of the heart. I saw Danny Smith stand at the casket of a little baby boy and he lifted up his head in a time of sorrow and he sang, God has been good to me so very good to me and I stood in amazement at a man who would bury his son but he knew that the arm of the Lord was strong enough to lift and to, and to carry away grief he has carried our sorrows I saw a mama stand by a gurney with a red-headed little 11-year-old boy hit by a car and was standing in that in the emergency room. He's a pair, he's one of a pair of twins there in that house. She stands there, old backslidden daddy's in the corner, all falling apart and coming apart, buried on his face on that tile in that emergency room. And that woman standing there like a big oak tree. And she said, Now, Lord, I want him. And God, I need him. And Lord, I love him. But if you need him more than I do, I want you to know it's okay. I'm telling you, he is our God who is able to carry our sorrows, who is able to lift up our grief. He is a heart mender. He's a mind regulator. He's a God who is able. My God, I'm glad that God has extended his power into the world today. If you're glad, just shout about it. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Is there a broken-hearted person in this house today? I want you to know he's strong enough. He's willing. He's able. Come on. This is working in the paradox. 
This is working in the irony. Setting him up as our hero, the only one that can save us, the only one that can deliver us. God's plan. And, and then at the end of that verse, though, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he's bearing my grief, he's carrying my sorrow, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And it's like a left jab. It caught me right here and it hung my jaw. And it opened my eyes and it set me up for a right cross that said, But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And it lays me out and I am staring into the endless, infinite mercies of God. My hero is going to die for me. The only one that can stand in the gap. The sacrifice of God, the mighty arm of God is going to bear my sin, my iniquity, my shame. He's going to bear all that for me. It leaves me staring up to the infinite sky of the mercies and the grace of God. Praise God. The substitution here is explained boldly, plainly. He is the sacrificial lamb. He's going to take my place. My guilt, he's the intercessor. The arm of the Lord is going to not only lift my sorrow, but it's going to lift my transgression. It's going to lift my iniquity. Oh, for the strength of that arm. Oh, thank God for his mighty arm. Ah, mighty God. Mighty God. If, if you could, just love him a little bit. Just thank him a little bit. Just worship him a little bit. Here's the indictment. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's my fallen, broken, distorted condition. And he's my scapegoat. And he's my lamb of atonement. And he's my Passover lamb. And he's my blood covering. And I find myself now I'm in the entourage, and we're making our way across Jerusalem, and I'm following in the train behind him, and I'm lagging way back, and I've got this huge conflict going on in my life. I am torn by the paradox here, by the irony here. I don't want him to die, and I want him to die. I don't want him to suffer, and I thank God he's suffering. I don't want him to be wounded, but he's got to be wounded. And so I'm just kind of stumbling along in total confusion, just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because I can't stop this. I don't want to stop this. He's my hero. He's the mighty hand of God. But I can't stop this. got to happen. This has, I don't have any hope unless this happens. I'm stumbling along behind chapter, seven, uh, chapter 53, verse 7. He is oppressed. He's afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. What's he going to say? He's going to say, his goat hair's fallen. His, his magnificence has fallen. What's he going to say? He won't blow his cover. He won't blow my cover. All these people that spend their lives finding fault with everybody around them. Don't you know that's the devil's business? Don't you know that Calvary is a big cover-up? Well, bless God, we don't need to cover this up, son. You better hope somebody covers something up. You better hope we get good and tidied up and covered up before we stand before God in the judgment. I'm glad for the cover-up that Calvary was. I'm glad for a covering in the night of a death angel. He's oppressed. He's afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before our shearers is dumb, this is replete. This is redundant. It is, it is the sacrificial message. It is the substitutionary sacrificial message over and over and over again. And how did they miss it? Now, we don't have anybody in our scripture that, 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 that is, a, that is a, a sacrifice for a nation. What? How is it you miss this? It's the prophetic history of the states of the scapegoat. It's the lamb of atonement. It's the Passover lamb. He is the good shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
His silence astounds Pilate. Pilate can't believe. He said, this is an innocent man. This, Pilate is his testimony. Just like Caiaphas said, one man's going to die for a nation. Pilate said, he's innocent. He's righteous. Pilate was amazed. Like, come on, let me coach you. Let me help you. Can't you say something on your behalf? But he wouldn't say anything. He engaged a little conversation with Pilate. He never said a word to Herod. Because Herod killed his pastor. You kill your pastor, God won't talk to you. That's a little self-indulgent. I'm a pastor. But what could he say? He held his cards close to his vest. Sorry for the gambling metaphor among the holy of God. He didn't disclose his message, his mission. He didn't disclose. He didn't blow our covering. He's always doing this. He's always revealing and he's always hiding. The parables, the tower of cloud and fire, light to these, darkness to those, and the one came not near the other all the night. He's always showing. He's revealing. The arm of the Lord's revealing to those that believe and darkness to those. Well, I just don't see that. I don't, well, I don't believe the report of the Lord. Light to these, the parables, disclosing, covering. He told the Jews, he said, I and my father are one. The Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, many good works have I showed you. For which of these do you stone me? We don't stone you for good works. We stone you because you're a man and you make yourself to be God. They got it upside down. It's God. He had come as a man. But he kept his secret. He came in disguise. He was the king. He was the prince. And he came as the papa. He came in disguise. And Paul talks about it. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God hath ordained before the world unto our glory. Which none of the princes of this world knew for had they known it. If they had known what he was up about, what he was doing, what the plan was, what the end result was, what it would do to them. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They'd have been at the devil would have been at the cross. Death would have been at the cross. Hell would have been at the cross. The grave would have been at the cross saying, don't touch him. Leave him alone. Had they known it, they never would have crucified. But he was a stealth bomber. Little skinny, scrawny, ugly Jew. Bam! Bam! Whipping post. Blood everywhere. Pulped his lips. He was a nuclear virus about to go into a place where no Adamic man could go. He was the answer to the redemptive dilemma. He was on course. He was on time. This was not Pilate's plan. This was not Rome's plan. This was not the Sanhedrin's plan. This was God's plan. He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. If you could roll out God's blueprint, the first thing you would see before the garden, before the tree, before Adam and Eve, is the figure of a man hanging on a cross. He is a devastating charge planted at the root of our existential problem. And a timer is set. Click, tick, tock, tick, tock. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living, letting you know that it's not going to be a natural progeny. When you see God asking a question, it's not that he wants some information. God already knows the answer. God's the counselor. He never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. The, uh, any question God asks you, it's rhetorical. Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. Adam needs to know where Adam is. Who shall declare his generation? God knows who's going to declare his generation. But do you know who's going to declare his generation? 
for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken I see him being dragged across Jerusalem. I see him. He's, it's the beginning of a lament. Our hero is going to his death. The strength of God is going to die, going to be cut off. And the lament and the cry, who shall declare his generation? He's cut off in his prime. The suggestion is he'll have no family. He'll have no progeny, no little kids. There won't be an instance where a, an old man comes to a little tussle-headed boy and says, you know, when you look like that, you look just like your, your daddy Jesus. There won't be anybody to, to see a little girl playing in the sunshine and catch the, catch the light just right in profile and say, that gal looks just like her granddaddy Jesus. Won't be anybody to tell his story around the table. Won't be anybody to sing his song. Won't be anybody to carry on his story. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He'll have no one to remember. Who's going to carry on his name? Who shall his name who's gonna walk as his progeny as his generation who who's gonna do that? God knows you need to know nobody to remember him around the table nobody to look like him and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. That sounds a little bit out of sync. It should be, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death in spite of the fact that he had done no violence, neither was, no, no. It was precisely because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. It was precisely because he was specifically and precisely chosen, the, 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 the plan of God, the insurgent force of God, it was because he would be the only righteous one, the only one who had done no violence, the only one who had no deceit in his mouth, and death was going to come and embrace him, and grave was going to open its maw to him, and hell was going to say, come on in, bring him on in, but there was something to there was something they didn't know. They didn't have any claim to him. They didn't have any right to him. They didn't, the, the, the curse can't visit a righteous man. And, and hell can't, hell can't hold a righteous man. And death can't hold down the righteous of God. And it was already planned. And he was down. He was moving into there. He made his grave with the rich and with the wicked paradox is that the language is perfect. It's not in spite of his innocence. It's because of his innocence. He's buried with sinners because he is good. Because that's the plan of God. God planted a time bomb back in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this, is a, this is a conundrum because the conundrum is this. He's got to bear my curse in the plan of God. But how can he bear the curse if he's a righteous man? How can he bear the Because the curse only comes on sin. And he can't sin if he's going to be the Lamb of God. Because the Lamb of God has to be perfect and without blemish and perfectly sinless. So how's the curse going to come on a righteous, sinless man? Deuteronomy 21, 22, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and if he be to be put to death, and if thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but thou shalt in a wise bury him that day. And that, this is all that business that's going on at the end of the, the, the passion story and the cross and all. They go and they say, we got to get him down. You got to let us have him. You got to give instructions to break their legs so they die faster because on the cross you die because your diaphragm's distended and you can't breathe. And if you're going to breathe, you got to pull yourself up on the nails and 
you get a little breath, but now your thighs are tearing themselves apart. Your back muscles are spasming and you die and you collapse and you can't breathe again. And so that thing goes on all day and sometimes they last into the night, but they broke their legs, those thieves, so they would collapse and die quicker because they were holy men. And they said, we don't want the land to be cursed. And they remembered Deuteronomy 21. And, they, and they're walking in the, in the script that God had written for them. And they're expediting things because tomorrow's a holy day. We can't have this going on. So they get them down off the cross. And here, parenthetically, God drops it in. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Not a good man. Not a bad man. Not a criminal. Just anybody that's hanged. Could be, could be anybody. Could be a scrawny little ugly Jew from Bethlehem and Nazareth out of a carpenter shop that had never sinned in his life. And when they hanged him on that tree, he became, he became the relief for that conundrum. He was at once perfect and holy and righteous. And he was perfectly positioned, hanged on that tree. And the curse came to get him, thinking he was just like every other one he had ever come for. Death came to get him just like every other one he had ever come for. But they took him down into the depths of their places. And he was the Only three days left on the timer. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is God's plan. It's nobody else's plan. This is the pleasure of God. He put him to grief. He put him to grief. The Lord said unto my Lord, the lamb and the lion and the God and the Christ. He put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Here's the answer. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Who shall declare his generation? Now, suggesting that he's not going to have any seed, no progeny, because he's cut off out of the land of the living. But when thou shalt make his offering, a, uh, his soul an offering for sin, when he dies and gasp his last on that cross he shall see his seed he's going to have some babies but they're not going to be natural babies he's going to have a seed but it's going to be something like the world has never seen before and he dies but he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand this thing's full of paradox he dies but he prolongs his days my God, you ought to look at the devil right now and tell him, I might die, but my days are going to be prolonged. You're going to be in a, you're going to be in a lake of fire, and I'm going to be around the throne of God. It's like Revelation 20 and 4. They got their heads cut off. For the witness of Jesus, the word of God, they wouldn't take the mark and they wouldn't bow before the they wouldn't bow before the image and they got their heads cut off. But the very end of that fourth verse, and they lived, and they lived, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. My God, you can't kill what God is doing. You can't stop what God is doing. You can't kill the seed of God, the plan of God. Praise God. How do the Jews miss this? His soul is an offering for sin. It's an irony. It's a paradox. It answers the question, who shall declare his generation? When his soul is offered, that's when he sees his seed. He'll prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see, in verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied by his knowledge of my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. This is so redundant. The, tra uh, the travail of his soul is going to satisfy the redemptive dilemma. Mercy and justice. And they are at the cross at the death of this righteous man. The psalmist said mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. It happens at the cross. He shall see the travail of his soul. Travail speaks of suffering. It speaks of pain. But especially biblically, 
It, it is inextricably linked with childbirth. It, it's, it's linked travail and Zion travails. It's linked to childbirth. And all the mamas said amen. And all the men said amen. When they came to Jesus, he was still alive. Or he was dead already. But the soldier wanted to make sure, make sure that he's dead. So he plunges that spear into his side. And when he does, the Bible says forthwith came blood and water. It's just like a natural birth. Blood and water. He shouldn't have had water in his eye. If we could have somebody come up for an object lesson this morning, this afternoon. Would you mind if we just plunged the spear into your side? Just for an object lesson. You know, all we're going to get is red, rich, Cajun blood. That's all we, we may get some music out of it. I think there's a lot of music in that heart. I, but you're not supposed to get water. But through the stress of the night and the beating and the, and the collapsing of his body systems before he ever got to the cross, he's dying of congestive heart failure. And his heart sack is filled with water. And that's when the psalm just says, my heart is like wax within me. And when he plunges that spear into his side, water and blood come out. And the church is born. And the church is born by blood and by water. We can talk about it. The semantics are interesting. But when Peter says that baptism is for the remission of sins, I believe the blood's working in baptism. What can wash away my sin? Tell them it's not the water. Tell them it's not the preacher. Tell them it's, it's not any of this. It's got to be the blood of Jesus. And if baptism washes my sins away, baptism is where the blood comes down. What, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the strong arm of God. He bare the sin of many and made intercession. For the transgressors. Praise God. While he's hanging there and he's dying. The centurion is so impressed with him. Because he's able to pull up on those nails. And take enough breath in to cry out with a loud voice. That man was not converted at the cross. He said truly this was the son of God. He's a Roman. He's a pagan. He said if you would. This guy is like Hercules, a son of God. He was amazed. You know what he did? He pulled up on the nails and he cried out. Eli, Eli, Lamaxabathani. Or, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now some say he felt forsaken of God. I'm a simple-minded man. I believe he was God. I believe that he yet is God. I believe everything that he did was by the word of God. When you chart that much activity with prophecy, you can't deviate from it. He said, everything I do, I do by the Father. I do everything the Father says. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't say. And I want you to know the cross was choreographed. And it's like the rhetorical question business. When God goes to crying out and you humanize it, you act like the Greeks and the Romans who pulled God down to their level and made them like men. You don't ever want to do that. You may not understand, but you better just lend, lend it to the fact that God's ways are higher than your ways like the heavens are above the earth. I may not understand him, but I'm sure not going to diminish him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? 
You know, when that went forth off the cross, it seems like somebody, some of those holy men, some of those righteous men would have said, he's quoting scripture, he's quoting scripture, give me a Bible. They, their Bibles were like this. They, give, me a, give, me a, give me the scripture, Let me, let's, let's read that. What is he saying? Because he didn't have chapter and verse, and he couldn't say, read Psalms 22. But that's what he said. He said, read Psalms 22. But they didn't, not a Nobody, they said, he's calling on Elijah. He's calling on God. Somebody gave him some vinegar and gall. Somebody shoved a sponge in his mouth. Made fun of him, mocked him. But at his very last, he was saying, you need to get this. Don't you see what I'm doing for you? You need to understand what's happening in front of your eyes. But nobody opened the book. In his agony, he's directing us. He's always teaching, always didactic, always revealing. Even to his very last breath, he's never out of control. He's always purposed, and he's always thinking about you. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the glory that was set before him. Listen, he already had glory. He's thinking about his church thinking about his people David is the prophet we hear David's voice my God my God why hast thou forsaken me that is a man's heart crying out that is a prophet's heart crying out but somewhere in the prophetic script of Psalms 22 there is a shift we as we're reading David we pass through a spiritual dynamic and we move into a place where David's not talking about David anymore. Because there are things that are going to happen in that 22nd chapter of Psalms that never happened to David. He said, verse 6, I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head. I feel like I'm reading in Matthew. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That is a verbatim quote out of the Gospels. God wrote the script, and the godless Jews that crucified the Christ were reading from the script of God. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. His elbows and his shoulders were popping out of joint. He's hanging there by tendons and by ligaments. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. He's dehydrated. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me, Gentile soldiers. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, the Sanhedrin. They pierce my hands and my feet, and that never happened to David. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. He's completely naked on the cross. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They gamble. The soldiers at the foot of that cross gambled for his garment, just like God wrote it in the prophets. Psalms 22 is about the crucifixion. Verse 23, ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all the seed of Israel. Verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied because of the cross. They shall praise the Lord that seek him because of the cross. Your heart shall live forever because of the cross. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord because of the cross. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee because of the cross. Verse 30. A seed shall serve. And it shall be accounted unto him for a generation. It is not a mistake that this is buried in a prophetic chapter and reading about the cross. A seed's going to break forth out of his side, out of blood and water. And it shall be accounted unto the Lord for a generation. And he sees them coming. He sees them coming. They shall come, verse 31, and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. That what? It fulfilled Isaiah 53. It fulfilled Psalms 22. That he had bled 
and die on a cross for our sins. Praise God. If you love him, let's give him some praise. The question looms in the house, who shall declare his generation? Touch your neighbor and look at him and say, because of what he's done, I will declare his generation. It may not be appropriate, but I'd like for you to touch them a little bit. You don't have to pat their face or tussle their hair, but just say, you know what? I, I think... I think when the light hits you just like that, you kind of look like your daddy Jesus. I, I think you kind of, you know, look at that little fella right there. He looks like his granddaddy Jesus, you know. Who's going to declare his generation? Who's going to tell his story around the table? Who's going to sing his song around the fire? Who's going to bring him up into remembrance? Tell me the story of Jesus right on my heart every word. I was a Baptist kid. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth glory to God in the highest peace and good tidings on earth you almost have to be a Baptist to to play that. Everybody say, tell me. Tell me the Come story. on, sing it. The story of Jesus. If you're gonna, if you're gonna be his declarer, his herald, ride on my heart every word. If you're gonna be his generation and you're gonna tell the story to a people that shall be born, why don't you make your way down to this altar today and begin to say, I'm gonna be the one that tells the story. I'm gonna be the one that looks like him. I'm gonna be the one that sings his song. I'll be the one that tells his story around the fire. Tell of the cross they nailed him he was writhing in anguish and pain tell of the grave where they lay him and tell me how he liveth again Somebody tell the story. Somebody tell the story. Somebody preach a sermon. Somebody sing a song. Somebody tell a man on the street. Somebody tell someone about the arm of the Lord that can lift grief and sorrow out of your heart and out of your life and out of your family. Tell me the story most precious. Sweetest that ever was heard. Love in that so tender, sweetest than ever I see. He said, Stay. Somebody say, love, pay the ransom for me. Somebody tell the story of Jesus. Somebody tell the story of Jesus. Hallelujah. Tell me 
Close your eyes and thank I you. Am Thank you for the cross. 